0: If you've not been with us up to this point, we're working our way through Hebrews. As I said last week, the benefit of, did I say this last week? The benefit of teaching in an expository manner is that you don't get to skip the portions of text that you might normally read through or breeze through more quickly. I might have said that last week, but regardless, what we're doing as we teach through the Bible, oftentimes not so much thematically as much as we do um, portion of text, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, what we do is we're building a robust biblical theology. And so that's one of the benefits So we're going to begin this morning. I've got a lot of text to cover today. I've decided to take the whole chapter of Hebrews 7, not Severin, the whole chapter of Hebrews 7, and that's because you'll see you cannot separate it. Hebrews 7 has to be considered, read, studied in its entirety. So I'm going to read from the ESV. Um, Because there's so much text, I don't have it necessarily on the screen, but you can follow along if you don't have your Bible, if you have a different translation. Um, Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. And let's receive this morning the word of the Lord today. For this Melchizedek king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, "...met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever." See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office of a commandment in the law to take tithes from people that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham, but this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Verse 11 now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For when the one of whom these things are For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life. Say that with me, by the power of an indestructible life, just to make sure you guys are still awake. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Verse 28, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Deep breath, whoa, what is he talking about? Especially if you're visiting today, you're going, what have I walked into? (laughs) I'm actually very excited this morning to teach Hebrews chapter 7. Um, as much as it was inferred a couple of weeks ago by another person that I like to select the text that I teach, that is not the case. I'm really excited actually today to teach this chapter. I was, as I was thinking about it, I was saying, you know, next to the Nephilim, how many of you are familiar with the Nephilim from the Bible? Okay, Next to the Nephilim... And, and probably just as mysterious, Melchizedek has got to be one of the most shrouded individuals within Scripture. Probably one of the most misunderstood. definitely um, highly debated, of course. And I would say that in our readings, we probably get to chapter 7, and we read right on through it, and we look for the stuff that resounds with our hearts, and we go, okay, that was good, let's keep going. But we have the obligation as believers, first of all, Let's remind ourselves that the word of God, every portion of it has been given to us to be understood, to be received, and to be applied to our life. So there is no portion that contradicts, nor that is fully obscured, that it cannot be understood through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we have that hope as we approach a text. So we come today, and I, w- I wanted to be- begin with um, a little something here. And I'm gonna give you three statements, and I want you to identify of these three statements the best, uh, which one best describes your level of comfort and familiarity with Melchizedek? Give me the first one. So Melchizedek, if this is you, raise your hand. This is your understanding. Okay, Melchizedek, he's an earthly king who meets and blesses Abraham in Genesis 14, prefiguring Jesus Christ and foreshadowing the eternal priesthood that he would hold. So if you find yourself in one of these today, you can raise your hand if you want. You don't have to. The second one is this. Okay, I'm somewhat familiar and could probably spell his name in a pinch if I spelled it phonetically. But I'm not really certain if he was a man, an angelic being, or someone else. Why the Shroud of Mystery, Melchizedek? And C, maybe this is you this morning. You mean that guy from the Mormon religion? Right? Right? So we might find ourselves anywhere on this spectrum today of comprehension and familiarity with Melchizedek. But let me say this. Let me remove some of the shroud, if I may. As intriguing as his figure is within Scripture and as significant as he is in our author's mind, and we're going to delve into why that is, and I would say even though he is an easy, easy nine on the fascinating Bible people scale and super mysterious... And honestly, he's a little bit of a B.A. Barakas. You guys remember B.A. Baracus? Well, I'll just leave that one out there for you. He's a little bit of a B.A. Barakas. This is, he, he's, he's awesome. Um, be, but regardless of all of that, regardless of, of, of all of those things, Melchizedek, listen, the person of Melchizedek, in terms of his um, prefiguring, That is the aim of the author of Hebrews. It is not to just present this man, and some of the controversy has come because it's like, well, is this a theophany? Is this an appearance of Christ? Is this an angelic being, or is this just a man? There's mystery around and and disagreement around who he is theologically throughout church history, but I want to say this to you this morning. As important as he seemingly is in the writer of Hebrews' mind, the aim of Hebrews in this particular chapter is not to present him as the ultimate goal. It's to present him as a type of something. And let me just draw your attention thus far to where we've been. like the angels in chapter 1, Like Moses, like Joshua, like David in Hebrews chapter 3, like Aaron in Hebrews chapter 5, Melchizedek here in chapter 7 is just another man in a long list of men who is a means to an end, whose representation within redemptive history is essential to understand, I would say, which is why I'm going to take the time this morning to just unpack what I believe the Bible teaches us about his person, but we can easily place, I would say, the importance of men like David, like Moses, like Aaron, as to their foreshadowing of the new covenant, but I think with Melchizedek, we have to just dig a little bit deeper. But I wanna begin by saying, he is a man, and he is a man, like the others that Hebrews has presented thus far, whose intent is to point us towards something greater. Okay? And it's this something greater through all of these examples of these men, that we have to always keep in view. Who is it thus far? Here's a a quick question of review. This is an easy one. It's called a softball pitch. Thus far, who have all of these individuals that I've just listed, who have they all pointed to? Let's hear it. Jesus, the Christ, Son of God. Any of those answers would be acceptable. So I think it's important, though, to remind us as we go along that the goal of Hebrews is a presentation of Jesus Christ as creator and as sustainer of a better, more perfect system of salvation. That is the point of Hebrews. All the while and all through the remainder of this book, we're going to find that he is intent on showing to us the juxtaposition between the old covenant and the new covenant. The law as introduced by Moses, the covenant that God entered into with Abraham that we looked at in chapter six in the last couple of weeks, and the new covenant ushered in by Jesus the Christ. How much better, how much superior, and might I say how perfect the new covenant is. That is the object, that is the aim and the goal of the writer of Hebrews. And so Melchizedek just finds himself under and as a means of taking us to that ultimate goal. Therefore, the purpose of this letter is to call all the followers of Jesus Christ, whether they were the original hearers or us today, listen, to guard ourselves from returning to the ways of the old covenant. That is why the author is showing to us the perfection, the beauty, the significance of the new against the old so that we would not return to Egypt, as I said weeks ago, so that we would not fall back into the ways or the, the figurative ceremonial washings that the old covenant presented, the, the ceremonies, the, um, the, all the things that the priests gave themselves and the people gave themselves to because of their sin. Those have been dealt with through Jesus Christ. And now, as I'll say here in a few minutes, we are a recipient of a new and different and better covenant. And so therefore, we must resist the urge to fall back into righteousness by works, into purification through good acts and through righteous acts. Because what we are to be encouraged with today as those of us who live on this side of the cross, as those of us who now walk as new creation beings in the life of the new covenant is to the recipients by the spirit of God of the law of grace upon our life. So we are no longer ruled by the ways of the old covenant, but we are now ruled and governed and compelled by the spirit of grace through Jesus Christ that's alive in each and every one of us today if we have placed our faith in him. Isn't that fantastic? Why is that fantastic? Because grace is the impetus for everything in the life of the believer. It's not only the motivation, as in salvation, our receiving of grace, But it's also our ability, grace is the divine ability to live obediently unto God. And we're going to get more into that. And now I'm just kind of riffing here at the moment. It's what you call theological riffing, right from the hip. So what I want to do this morning is I actually want to take a moment, because I think it's important within um, this chapter, to actually just unpack what is Hebrews tell us about Melchizedek. Let's try to understand him now as this man. What does it tell us? What doesn't it tell us? And where is the significance in all of it? And I just love how that verse four, he begins by this statement. See how great this man was. Melchizedek was a great man. And here's why. It's widely considered that he quite possibly be a descendant of Noah, What we see about him is that he is a man, he's a righteous king, he's a king of peace and seemingly he has lived humbly and righteously and faithfully before God in a world and an age of godlessness. Here is this man, apart from what God is doing with Abraham and apart from the covenant seemingly that God has made with Abraham, here is this king who is just faithfully living righteously in a godless age. And I love this statement, I came across it this week. I'm gonna share a few things with you. It's a quote by Charles Spurgeon, who's also another BA Baracus of our time. Charles Spurgeon says this, we see but little of him, yet we see nothing little in him. It's thought that just as significant as the very little that is said about him within scripture, so too is the silence to his personage. Just as important as what is said is that which is not said about Melchizedek. And it's thought that it's, and we'll get into this, that it's intentionally been left out by God when he inspired Moses to record Genesis. So let's see what what is given. I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 14. This is where the uh, international man of mystery makes his appearance on the stage. Genesis chapter 14, we have the, the context for this is that Abraham, Lot has been abducted, all of Lot's possessions, his family have all been taken by the kings of the valley. And Abraham, being the family man that he is, being the, uh, the good cousin that he is, goes after Lot, pursues those who have kidnapped him and all of his possessions, beat the snot out of him, and now are returning on a victory campaign back to his homeland, And so that's the context, and we see here, beginning in verse 17, it says this: After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, and the king. Now I'm going to really try. I'm going to really try. I'm just kidding. Chedorlaomer, how about that? And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him. This is speaking of Abram. The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shevaeh. That is the king... I love being up here. I get to just say these words like this is how they're pronounced. I want you to write these down. No, it's, it's Shevaeh, son. The valley of Shevaeh. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, "'Professor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, "'who has delivered your enemies into your hand.' "'And Abram, as a response, gave him a tenth of everything. "'And the king of Sodom said to Abram, "'Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself.' "'But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, "'I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, "'Professor of heaven and earth,' That I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anur, Eshel, and Mamre take their share. How did I do with those three? Anor, Eshel, and Mamre take their share. So here's Melchizedek. So this is the, the presentation. We see Melchizedek three times in Scripture. Right here in Genesis 14, David speaks of him prophetically, again prefiguring Christ in Psalm 110, and of course we have Hebrews, and Hebrews is intent on giving us more. So this is what we do see. The first thing that we see is that he is identified in Hebrews 7 verse 1 as both a king of righteousness and also a king of peace. He is a king of righteousness, and he is a king of peace. Think about this, the significance of that for a moment. Historically, both of those offices were kept separate so that not one man would have the ability to dominate the public life of Israel. That was how God had designed it, to keep those powers, much like the branches of government within the U.S. Constitution was meant for a separation of power, so too did God keep the office of king and priest separate from each other. But here we see Melchizedek, who not only occupies both, but scripture tells us that he did so honorably and faithfully and humbly before God. He is worthy of the honor in both of these places. Second, we see that he comes out, meets and blesses Abraham in a very public fashion. The king of Sodom has come out also to greet Abraham, but with obviously a little less blessing, a little bit more natural. Why don't you just keep the spoils and give me my servants or my people back? But what we see here as Melchizedek comes out in recognition of the significance of Abraham and God's place of Abraham within redemptive story and redemptive history, He acknowledges Abraham publicly. He blesses him publicly. And I love the picture, which Hebrews actually leaves out, of bringing bread and wine. Third, we see that he is a king whose name in Hebrew means king of righteousness. He's an earthly man, he's an earthly king. And it says that he is king of peace, king of Salem, is what we're told. Salem is commonly thought of as being what is now Jerusalem because Jerusalem in Hebrew means city of Salem. And the derivative of Salem in Hebrew is shalom, which we know is absolute, divine, and utter peace. And so it's thought that here's a king, he's king of Jerusalem, and he comes out and he meets with Abram. As to what scripture is silent about, I think there are two significant things. In 7.3, it says that he is without, firstly, father, mother, or genealogy. Think about the significance of that recording within Genesis. All of the scripture, specifically Genesis, is consumed with exact and specific genealogical recordings, Think of all the genealogies that are very specifically recorded throughout Genesis. Yet we see in God's inspiration of Moses, it's intentionally left out. And we'll draw a conclusion, of course, from that if you have not already. Secondly, as to what Scripture is silent about, just following the statement of his genealogy, I was going to talk about his study of rocks, his, his degree in geology, we see, that, uh, we, we see this, that he, it says that he has no beginning of days, nor does he have end of life. The writer, again, seemingly sees so much significance in what Genesis leaves out as with what it makes clear. Brilliant when you think about this. Twice he has appeared within Scripture, twice now. And yet, the writer of Hebrews, looking back hundreds, if not thousands of years, into history and into the scriptures, has insight through the Spirit of God as to what God's intent was, again, in foreshadowing the amazing nature and personage of Jesus Christ. And it's in these two unique omissions, I would say, that the view begins to become more and more clear. The writer of Hebrews, peering back into redemptive history, he knows so well the significance of the covenantal promise that God made with Abraham, as shown so clearly through how he developed it in chapter 6 of Hebrews. He begins to connect the sovereign dots, if you will. Looking back through scripture, and he sees Yahweh's inspiration on Moses to record only these specific facts, And as I said, foreshadowing the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise through Jesus Christ. It's totally beautiful, you guys. And I said this last week, you can't make this stuff up. This only comes through divine inspiration. And so the point of me saying all this is this. Melchizedek was always meant to point to Jesus. That is why we have him. He is to point to Jesus like so many other men and women within the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. And of course we know the Old Testament itself finds its meaning and its significance in the New Testament and in the New Covenant. And not to lose sight of this kind of main overarching theme or the thread throughout Hebrews, the purpose of this comparison is to establish the superiority of a separate priestly line the superiority of a separate priestly line, not from Aaron. We saw this last week. It couldn't be from Aaron. It must not be from Aaron because Aaron was filled with men who could not continue eternally through their priestly duty. It had to be another man. It had to be another priest. It had to be someone greater. Not Aaron came in through his right. Aaron's right, the priesthood that was introduced through the lineage of Aaron, through the Levites, was due to right. But through Melchizedek, Mel, Melchizedek. Oh my God, this is, they're going to put me up with all the Biden gaffes that are on YouTube these days. Not with Melchizedek, Mel, Melchizedek. it's like a gizzard. Melchizedek, listen, let me make this statement again. Aaron's priesthood was introduced by right. Jesus' priesthood was introduced through Melchizedek because of righteousness. That's an important differentiation. That's the distinction, that's the significance of Melchizedek. Boy, sometimes you just undercut the whole momentum that you have moving forward. Okay, so let me make some quick comparisons, and then what I want to do is I just want to hover around the end of chapter 7 here, and I want to bring it to Jesus. And I want to apply it to our hearts through the lens of Jesus. So if you've not already done this, which I'm sure you probably are beginning to connect the dots yourselves, I want to just quickly draw some attention to some of these connections between Melchizedek and Jesus. Again, Melchizedek prefiguring, you know what that means, right? He's pointing to, he's foreshadowing something. And it's not just something else, it's something better. That's the significance of foreshadow. It points to something better. So Melchizedek, as I said, he occupied the office of both priest and king. Jesus, we know, as Hebrews has so explicitly told us, through the sacrifice of himself as an offering to God on behalf of the sins of humanity, sits as priest, sits as priest in perpetuity on our behalf for all time. In addition, through his resurrection and through his ascension, he's been given a place of supreme, eternal king, the one who would rule over his people as well as creation. Jesus Christ is both priest and king. Melchizedek comes and publicly blesses Abraham, the father of the faithful, thus foreshadowing God's covenant with Abraham. And with it, Genesis records that he brings, as he comes to meet Abraham, the bread and wine, through God's covenant with Abraham, now speaking of Jesus, he fulfills not only God's promise, he fulfills, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to be the blessing of all nations, as I said recently. Jesus Christ is the blessing of all nations, but also through this, we see the Lord's table, that we now, as the children of Abraham and the heirs of the promise, as he says in chapter 6, through the lord's table we are participants and as i said a moment ago recipients of his grace in remembrance of this new and better covenant thirdly melchizedek it says was a father without excuse me was a man without father mother or genealogy put the quote up for me if you will ff F. bruce sa- says this in his commentary if you're not familiar with ff F. bruce if you're familiar with dean miller he loved F.F. F. Bruce. He still does, but when he was with us, he loved F.F. F. F. Bruce. F.F. Bruce is a brilliant man. In his commentary, he says this, the silence of the Old Testament scriptures concerning his parentage has a designed significance. The entire omission was ordered by the Holy Spirit in order to present perfect type of the Lord Jesus. And of course, we don't need to go too far to know that the comparison is blatantly clear as Bruce points out, Jesus Christ is without origin. The eternal son of the father has always been in existence and will always be. Fourthly, Melchizedek, and lastly, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, another gentleman, another wonderful writer and theologian, A.W. Pink, says this, and it's better sometimes just to tell you these brilliant quotes, rather than me trying to come up with something that falls short at times. A.W. Pink says, in the only record which scripture provides of Melchizedek, he appears as a living man and as such, he disappears. In all this, in the silence as well as the statements, he is a fitting type of Christ. Melchizedek remains priest continually for the duration of his appearance in the biblical narrative. I love that, how the writer of Hebrews and how, how Pink here picks up on this pink, not the singer, but the theologian, picks up on the fact that just in the silence of of the fact that he has no birth and no death, that in that silence, there is a picture of Melchizedek and the priestly office of Jesus Christ, as I said, in perpetuity. And of course, we know Jesus Christ, as our passage tells us, he holds this office permanently, because he continues forever. So I wanna move now and I wanna draw our hearts just in the time that I'm gonna take for the remainder of the morning, and I want to draw our hearts back to Jesus or unto, ultimately, Jesus Christ. And I wanna say, just as it says in 7.4, see how great this man was in Melchizedek. Of Jesus Christ, I wanna say, see how great this man is. See how great he is. This is the point of Hebrews as great as Melchizedek was, as like significant of a man and a king and a righteous ruler and a faithful, humble servant in a godless age, just going through in drudgery sometimes of continuing to be faithful amidst all the things around him, as significant as he was, as righteous as he was, as holy as he was, how much greater is the one whom he points to. And now with the remainder of this chapter, which I'm not going to be able to take every single bit, I'm just trying to go through it, and I apologize if I'm moving too quickly, but it's such a large swath of text, and as I said, you can't take one, because if we were just to end right here at verse 10, we would only have a picture of the reflection rather than looking at the original itself. And so we must continue on, and through the remainder of the chapter, it's going to continue in this trajectory of the superiority of the greater to the lesser. That's the theme, the greater to the lesser, of Jesus' priesthood to the former, the presentation of the permanence. The greater is greater because of the presentation of the permanence of his place as eternal priest and guarantor, as Hebrews 7 tells us, of our eternal salvation. And so what's more, in verses 11 through 19, our our writer reminds us of the purpose of the law as through the priesthood of Aaron and how it ultimately was only intended to lead those in the old covenant as well as us today to Christ. The law was simply put in place to point us to our need for Christ Jesus. And he says this, for if perfection had been attainable, for if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood in verse 11, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? In other words, if it could have been attained through Aaron, why was there a need for another greater priesthood? The use of the word perfection here in verse 11 can also be translated as the word completion, which is also can be used as the word salvation. So, in other words, if salvation could have been attained through the law, it would have, but it could not. And so, therefore, God did through Jesus Christ. This is Paul's argument in Galatians chapter 2. And in chapter 3, he makes these two statements in each chapter. First, he says, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Whoa! If righteousness, are you hearing me? If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you could have attained righteousness through all of your good works through being a great person, for being, through being morally upright, for doing the best that you could day in and day out in the circumstances you had than you would have. But the point is, is that we could not. We know that we fail. We know that we can never uphold the standard that is presented to us in God's law. And in chapter three, he says, Paul says this in Galatians For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by that law. But as I said, it couldn't. Why? Because as Romans 8 tells us, it was powerless because it was weakened by the flesh. The law was powerless because it was weakened by the flesh. Our flesh is weak. Our flesh is incapable of keeping the standard that the law requires. But thank God he didn't stop with Melchizedek but he gave us Jesus Christ. Therefore, a new priesthood would be established as part of ushering in this new system of salvation. A new priesthood is established, not one that is filled with imperfect men like the Aaronic priesthood, like the Levitical priesthood, one where there were men of great number who were unable to continue in their office because of the mortality, as he says in verse 23, but of Jesus, a new priesthood, the perfect man, one man, who would stand perfectly forever. And with this new priesthood, he tells us, comes a new law, which he says in verse 12 of chapter 7. Through Christ, we know that he didn't come to remove the law. What did he come to do? Are you guys still with me? Say it again. The 14-year-old in the front just said it. Oh, that wasn't it? Oh, someone with a high voice, higher voice. Doggone it, I was going to be really excited for a minute. I was going to say, our kids are getting it. That's okay, that's my son. I'll teach him later. He didn't come to remove the law. Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law as someone accurately said. He came to fulfill the law, and by doing so, he doesn't do away with it, but it's continually being met through the righteousness and the perfection of Jesus Christ, and by faith, we have union with Jesus Christ, and therefore, we attain that moral perfection, if you will, through the identification of Jesus. That law is fulfilled on our behalf. That is what the new law is that Hebrews seven speaks of. And in bringing in, and doing so of ushering in this new law within the new priesthood, as part of the new covenant, we now are recipients, not of the law of death and works, but we are recipients of the law of life, by the spirit of God, the law of grace. Take a hold of that just for a moment. Let that sink in, you guys. What I'm doing, I'm not necessarily teaching you something that you don't already know, but I'm hoping to just weave together the beauty of the gospel message and so ignite it within our hearts to not only let it be something that we take so much pleasure and delight in, but that we cannot help but yet speak of and give it away because of how beautiful and utterly profound it actually is. So let that just sink in for a moment. We have the Levites, the old priesthood, fulfilled by men, man after man, after man, after man, unable, who had to just, they would die, and then the next would come, and they would die, and the next would come. And that law only maintained relationship, allowed people to maintain relationship with God. And it wasn't eternally. But now Jesus In this picture of Melchizedek and who he was, God shows us this picture of the eternal priesthood, one that Jesus occupies, one that is a dispenser of grace, one which will never end, one that we cannot lose. And I'm going to get to that here just as I end. And I want to just say it culminates in these two verses that I want to look at together. Look back at your Bibles. Chapter 7, verse 24. This is the culmination of what I want to say this morning. But he holds his priesthood permanently. Why? Because he continues forever. And then it says, Consequently, or in light of this fact, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, The greatness of Jesus Christ and thus the supremacy of the new covenant of what he has done for mankind rests on the basis of three powerful truths that are found in these two verses. And they are this. The first is that he continues forever. Jesus Christ continues forever. Number two, he saves to the uttermost. And number three, he always lives to make intercession. He continues forever. He saves to the uttermost, and he lives to always make intercession. Let me just quickly unpack these three. As to the first, in verse 16, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus has now become priest not on the basis of a legal requirement, he says, but by the power of an indestructible life. In other words, Jesus continues forever as the great high priest because he was raised to life in power, he ascended in power, and he remains in a seat of power at God's right hand. Everything that Jesus did was by the power of God, by the power of an indestructible life. The life that he lived could not be compromised the life that he exists in, in his glorified, supreme, exalted state, cannot be removed. It's in a place of power. This is how he continues forever. Therefore, as followers of Jesus Christ, this is how we apply it. We never have to wonder whether we will be accepted by God as we approach him. We never have to wonder whether the righteousness that was imputed or given to us by faith in him will continue on or remain for us day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out. We never have to wonder if God's grace will continue because he remains forever. We never have to wonder whether the grace of God, administered now through the law of the Spirit, will not only continue, but it will be fully sufficient for our lives. You guys know what I mean by that? Sufficient, able to fulfill all area of need, able to fulfill all area of weakness for our life. The grace of God exists for that for us today. And because he continues forever, we will never have to question whether we will ever break union with him. Because after all, it was he who gave himself willingly for us. Not that we went to him and requested that he would give himself. Not that that he looked at us and saw the good works that we might do on his behalf or in his name and so he gave himself. He looked at us strictly because he loved us in our state of sinfulness and he gave himself for us. And as we often say, so therefore it is apart from anything that we could do to keep or maintain his salvation. His salvation, his grace, it remains for us. Again, in perpetuity of all time. For he holds his priesthood permanently, Hebrews says. As to the second, that he saves to the uttermost. It's predicated and it's built upon the first. It, it, it has its significance because of what I just said. Because Jesus continues forever as our permanent priest, He is therefore able and most certain to save to the uttermost. He is most able and certain to save to the uttermost. Say that with me. He is able and most certain to save to the uttermost. So what is the implication behind this? There's a forcefulness in the mind of of the Hebrew writer. There's movement in it behind this word uttermost. In it, a salvation that is both complete, as in for all time, as well as complete, as in without exception. That word uttermost can also be translated as complete. So in the mind of Hebrews, he's saying it's not only that it is complete throughout the duration of your life and in through eternity, but it's also complete as in it reaches every extent of our life. God's salvation reaches every nook and every cranny. He has redeemed and saved us to the fullest extent that redemption could be applied to one thing. He has saved you now and forevermore. And just as as that, Jesus has also saved you to the fullest extent possible, there's no portion of you that has not been seen and redeemed by God through Jesus Christ. No matter how low you think of certain aspects of yourself or how great you think yourself to be, there is nothing that has not been seen and redeemed by God. There's nothing in your life that is outside the reach of, of his saving power. can I say, there is nothing that will be outside the reach of his saving power. There is nothing that he's not already accounted for through the redemption of Jesus Christ. The effectiveness of his sacrifice, the effectiveness of the blood of Christ, which we remembered through the bread and through the cup this morning, the effectiveness of that was total and without a degree of want. Thank God. And so, with his eternal priesthood, there will never be a moment that his sacrifice is not also fully sufficient. It will never run out and it will never cease to be. Which lands us fully and squarely on the final and third point that he always lives to make intercession. That by this very basis of both his indestructible life and his continuance and also his utter and total and complete and effective saving Christ stands perfectly. Think of what that means. Perfectly. We spoke of this a couple weeks ago in our midweek class that we're doing on the attributes of God. Our understanding of the word perfection is marred because we are finite, because we are imperfect by nature. And so we have to wrestle with what that even means. And sometimes when I say, Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice, we go, yeah, but what about this that I did back in 1972. No, 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 no. It's perfect. It's complete. For all time and to the fullest extent, Jesus Christ stands perfectly forever and always on our behalf before the Father who sees Jesus Christ perfectly pleasing perfectly satisfying and perfectly acceptable for our salvation. And I've said this before, when, Jesus, when, when God looks at us, he looks at us through the lens. If these were Jesus' glasses, this is how God looks at us. He looks at us through his son Jesus, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, through the righteousness of Christ, which is why Paul will tell us, you are the righteousness of God. Our lives are hidden with Christ Jesus we're tucked into the crevice. We're beneath the wing of the Lord Jesus. We're made in union with God through faith, through G- in union with Jesus through faith. And so when he sees us, he sees us as the righteousness of God. He sees us as acceptable. He sees us as pleasing. And so what then is the benefit of that? It's that we, have such a great inheritance through Jesus Christ. It's that we, as I said, we come to him. We know that we're accepted. We know that we're saved. We know that we're wanted. We know that we're free. This God who lives outside of time always and continually and eternally stands as our mediator between a perfectly just, righteous, and holy God and a sin-natured and imperfect man, Matthew Daniel Martinez. Jesus stands on my behalf eternally. Jesus stands on your behalf eternally. Do not ever wonder, do not question. And it continues, listen to this, and I'm almost done, I promise. Listen to this, it continues for eternity. It doesn't just end when you die. Jesus Christ will stand before the Father for eternity. As we live in eternity, which has what? No ending. Can you picture that? As you live fully redeemed, this perfect sacrifice so too stands before God throughout all of eternity. What's the significance? Again, it will never change. Nothing will ever change. And what does that do? It secures for us an eternity where no man will ever sin where no failure into mankind, into the new glorified humanity ever enters again because Jesus stands for all eternity. So if you wondered how you're going to become glorified and remain as such, but yeah, won't it just happen again? Won't the next guy named Adam do something to get us kicked out one more time? No, no, no. This was it. He did this to show himself fully glorified to mankind that we would worship and he would bring others into relationship with him. And so now, what is the result of this? I want to just give you these. Because of this, he continues forever, he saves to the uttermost, and he lives always to make intercession for us. These statements that I say are following are true. I am forever redeemed, perfectly. I am forever saved, perfectly. I am forever accepted, perfectly. I am forever pleasing, Perfectly. I am forever identified with him perfectly. I am forever found in him perfectly. I am forever united to him. I am forever restored perfectly. I am forever held near to God perfectly. I am forever welcomed fully. I want to just read this to you. As to this eternal assurance that we have, the Westminster Confession of Faith states it as such. Let me read this to you today. and just use this as my landing point. This certainty, this certainty that I've just spoke of, brothers and sisters, is not a bare, conjectural, and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. And may I just add, not as a revisionist, but may I just add to that, and for all eternity until the day of redemption, until and through all of eternity. Our salvation is assuredly present, brothers and sisters. Would you stand with me as we just ask the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to go before? I, I, that, that was long, I understand. I said a lot as well, and I hope I did justice to Hebrews chapter seven. There was a lot to cover. But for us, again, to just grab hold, if nothing else, brothers and sisters in Christ, would you this morning grab hold of the permanence of Jesus Christ in his place on your behalf today? Make it personal because it is personal. Apprehend it for your heart. Find joy because he did this for you and he does this for you and he will continue to do so out of his love and care for you. And together we now come. And this is why Sundays are so beautiful. This is why it's not just going to church. This is why we come together as an expression of the church, which is the body of Christ, to celebrate, to marvel, to worship, to look at each other and smile and say, can you believe that this is true for you and for me? Can you believe it? That all my junk, which you probably know barely half of, was redeemed through Jesus Christ and now I'm gonna enjoy this just like you get to enjoy this. This is why Sundays are so beautiful. This is why Sundays are divine because the spirit of God is present with us and the grace of God is present to stir us in faith and to compel us to live now lives that reflect this truth. Oh, there's the rubber that meets the road. Now we get to go out by the grace of God and live a life to our best ability by the Spirit of God and the power of God who resides within you and reflect this man, Jesus the Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for your church that is gathered and even those who are scattered today and not person, uh, present in bottle, bodily form. Father, we pray today for a continued union of this church, of this faith community that is Capital City Church that you would keep us, Lord God, that you would compel us by grace, Lord, to live in so reflection of the glory of Jesus Christ and just the amazing wonder of what you have done in this new priestly covenant, Lord God. We thank you, Lord, today that you stand forevermore on the basis of an indestructible life, Lord God. There's nothing that can be done to remove you from the position of which you are present today before God on our behalf and on the behalf of other believers in Christ Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you would use us to bring into the fold, to draw others who do not yet know you, that they too would have the joy, the pleasure of living in such favor, Father, today, confirm in our hearts that we are beloved children of God, accepted forever, redeemed forever, welcomed and held near forever, Lord God. And I ask today, Lord, for those of us who feel distant, because, Lord, we know that sin actually causes us to take steps back from you. You don't remove yourself from us, but, Lord, when we choose sin, we choose the distance between us, Help us today, Father, for those of us who are distant because of our sin to step towards you, who receive your grace to to repent and to turn and so walk according to as I've stated this morning. And Lord, I finally ask that you would assure us of these things, that there would be no question in our minds or in our hearts, Lord God, that we would know that I am redeemed And that I will forever be redeemed. That nothing as the the hymn says can pluck me from the hand of Jesus Christ. No power of hell. No scheme of man, Lord God. We are eternally yours. We find ourselves united with Christ through faith. And I thank you, Lord. And now we pray for the grace of God on each of our hearts and minds and lives. In our homes may they be inhabitants of peace and joy and grace for our neighborhoods unto your glory, and unto your beautiful name. And we say together, amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Again, I know that was a lot, but be blessed today. Go in faith, and go in grace, and go in joy. You are accepted. We'll see you guys next week.